Happy Sabbath. Have you been blessed this week? Can we say amen? amen. I shared last week, just briefly, um, two of my immediate family members uh, in the past few weeks had, uh, had a scare. We, uh, and this is a praise I just want to share with you quick. I shared a little bit last week, but there is better news this week. Uh, two of my close family members have experienced cancer in the past five years. And uh, in the past three weeks, I got a call from uh, both these individuals stating that they had some tests, some screenings done, and there was some areas of, of high concern. And uh, when they're close family members, when they're friends, you know, these things are, are always uh, issues that, that cause us concern and drive us to our knees. Well, we've been praying for the past couple weeks. And this past week, just on Thursday, I got the report from the second individual that all is well. So we've been praying God is good. But, you know, I also realized this, that in the past in my family, even when those tests are negative, God is still good. Amen? Because they don't always come back the same way. But regardless, God is good. And that's why we are here today, because we're here to worship an amazing, incredible, all-loving, sustaining God. Amen? I pray you've been blessed already in our time of worship, of giving and praise. And as we prepare to open God's word together, I just ask that we bow our heads together one more time. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. You are good in the feast. You are good in the famine. You are good in the good reports, and you are still good even when the reports aren't so good. And so we come before you today, Lord, asking that your presence would be with us as we worship you, as we lift our hearts to you, that our hearts would certainly be in the right place, that our hearts would warm your heart as they are recognizing who you are, a God of love, a God who is worthy to be worshiped. And so, Lord, today inhabit our praises. Lead us in this time that we may be transformed in the process. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about giving in grace. And this past week, as I was contemplating the whole idea of giving in grace, is that, that, that grace is the fuel, it is the premise, it is the motivation behind all true giving. It is the grace of God, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that motivates all true heartfelt giving. God's sacrifice, his grace, his unmerited favor, spurns our hearts, transforms our hearts and our thought process, and motivates us to also give, because we are implanted with the grace of God, and we become conduits of that grace. But I believe that, that giving is not just about grace. Well, that is the motivation. I believe it goes further than that. I believe there's another component that we didn't miss, but we didn't get to. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2. And just as a reminder, chapter, verse 8, we're going to focus there. We're not going to read the verses before that. Verse 8, it just simply says, and you know this verse probably by heart, it says, For by grace you've been saved, through what? Through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So salvation comes by God's unmerited favor. Nothing we've deserved, nothing we've done to earn it. He loves us because he intrinsically values us, because we are special to him. And because of that great love, he sends his son to redeem us on the cross, die the death that we deserve, live the life that we failed to live. And now his life stands in place of our imperfect life, not because we deserve it, but because he offers it free of charge. Hallelujah. 
So we are saved by the pure, unearned grace of God. But the second element is this, is that we receive it through what is called faith. Faith is the belief and the acceptance, the acknowledgement of the grace of God. It is the vehicle through which we receive God's free gift of grace. And just to remind us that even that faith is a gift of God. He gives each man a measure of faith. We can't take credit for anything. Even the, the faith that we have to accept the gift comes from God. And our will cooperates with that faith to acknowledge who God is and what he's done for us. So the Bible says that we are saved by grace. If there's nothing else you remember today, remember that. We're saved by grace. Amen? You haven't deserved it. You can't earn it. It is a free gift of God. Hallelujah. I wish I knew that many years before I actually realized it and embraced it and began to live it. But secondly, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that the just shall live by faith. Those who have been justified, saved by the grace of God freely, now live by faith. So we've been saved by grace through faith. And though those who have been saved by grace, now it says, live their life by faith. The same two components, grace and faith. I'd like to submit to us today as we're going to delve into God's Word, that when it comes to giving, it is no different. We are saved, we live, but thirdly, we also give by grace through faith. We talked about God's grace and giving. Today we're, we're talking about giving in faith according to God's grace. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. And we're going to be studying this, this teaching through the lens of a story you've read many times. But we're going to go there again today. 1 Kings, chapter 17. 1 Kings 17.1, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Pause right there. Elijah seems to just come onto the scene here out of nowhere, unannounced. Boom, the prophet Elijah appears. Nowhere before, but certainly he comes on now. Elijah the Tishbite, who was he? Well, the Bible says here that he is from Tishbe, which makes him a Tishbite, that's from the area of Gilead. But also his name is significant because the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So his parents raised him and even named him after this belief that God is Yahweh. Yahweh is not just any God, that Yahweh is my God. He was their personal God. Which is why on the cross, when Jesus was about to give up his last breath, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sekbaktani. They said he's crawling out to Elijah. Eli, Eli means my God, my God. Hence, the name Elijah. Yahweh, Jah is my God. So why does he show up? Why does Elijah show up now out of nowhere? Why here? Why now? Why not before? Why not after? You see, prophets usually showed up because there was an issue amongst the people of God. There was a situation in Israel, and God raises this prophet. He brings him into the, into the spotlight 
because Israel needed to hear the voice of God. It was a pivotal moment in Israel's history. And so he raises Elijah the prophet, the voice crying from the wilderness, the original voice from the wilderness. And God's people needed to be addressed. What's the context? Chapter 16, we see the context of why Elijah was brought to light, why he, he, he crashes into Israel's history. Verse 29 through 33, we see that Omri had a son named Ahab, and you've heard of King Ahab numerous times, but the premise of Elijah's rise to, to prof- the prophetic call was because Ahab had married Jezebel. Ahab had married Jezebel in verse 31. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. He wasn't just the king of the Sidonians. He was also the high priest of the worship of Baal, which would explain a lot. That's why Jezebel, as we see later, was so staunch and, and persistent in her push to have Israel worship this false god. The Bible also says that Ahab, the king of Israel, sets up a temple, and he himself joins his wife in worshiping Baal, but not just Baal because then they set up some wooden images. Your, your, your version might say some groves, which kind of represent trees, or, or what they do, they even have stumps symbolizing this, this girlfriend of Baal, by the way. So there's Baal and his girlfriend, Ashtara, who together would bring about the rain and the fertility for all of Israel, would provide for Israel's needs according to this false worship. And what happens? Israel follows the lead of their king. Even in verse 34, just a little side note, Jericho is not to be rebuilt, and even this rebellion, even washes and and, and goes over to this area where this individual rebuilds the city of Jericho at the expense of two of his children, as was prophesied by Joshua, the son of Nun. When rebellion is in the heart of the leader, it is contagious, which is why as parents, as leaders, whatever place you've been put in, there's power and influence for the good or for the negative. Sometimes we underestimate the power, especially as parents, that we have through our words and through our actions in the life of our kids. That's why we need divine wisdom, because we all look in the mirror and see how imperfect we are. That's where we need God's grace. Amen? Ahab marries Jezebel. They're worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. And they look to them to meet their needs. And what is an, what is an idol, by the way? An idol, just, just to define it, is any unauthorized thing. It could be a person, place, or thing. In our life, it doesn't have to be a statue. An unauthorized thing in our life that we look to for meeting our needs. Whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual. Something that we look to that is unauthorized by God to meet our needs. You know, we don't look to idols so much today as far as images and statues. We worship more American idols, right? We worship people, popularity, power, prestige, possessions, a lot of peas there. But all these things in this day and age, in this culture, we worship. These are the things that feed our needs, feed our ego, feed the things that we have these gaps in our life 
that only one thing can truly fill, but we try to fill it with everything else. That's what idols do. We latch on to them, thinking that somehow these are going to fill the need in our life. It's within this context that Elijah comes onto the scene of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel is before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. God addresses Israel at their point of idolatry. They suddenly forgot about the God of heaven who provides for their needs, and now they're looking to Baal and Ashtra, this unholy union, boyfriend and girlfriend, who together bring, they thought suddenly, brings about all the vegetation, all of the fruits, all of the harvests. And so God says, I am going to hit where the idolatry is the strongest. There'll be no dew, no rain, no moisture. And then we'll see who is the one who truly provides for my people. Idols always block our hearts from God's grace because they are products of the broken systems of the world. The foundations of every worldly system are always humanistic or legalistic. What do idols do, especially today? In the humanistic sense, we, we look to ourselves to solve our problems. That's something within us. We have the ability to, to, to make ourselves great, to, to solve all the world's problems, to even put ourselves in a place where we want to be in life. What also idols do, maybe from a spiritual sense, is legalism. Because when we look at idols in a spiritual sense, every false religion has one thing in common, is that there's always the need to appease this false god, this idol, in order to receive a blessing. And so there's always this works, legalistic-oriented approach to salvation or to provision. Idols are always always on the attack, and it's no surprise, against the very grace of God. So the first premise is, giving in faith is rooted in the recognition of God's provision. And God's provision in every aspect is always the product of his grace. Whenever God provides for us, it's because he loves us, because he is a God of grace who provides for our needs even when we don't deserve it. The sun rises and sets and the rain falls on the wicked and the just. God's grace is extended to many, to this planet. Even to those who don't acknowledge it, God's grace reaches. Whether they want to accept it or not, they're recipients of his grace. It's just the difference is that those who, who believe in God and have acknowledged him now experience it in a deeper level, in a salvation level, in a relational level, it is through that grace that it spawns us to worship him. We shouldn't be surprised that when we are worshiping something unauthorized, that God shuts it down because he loves us too much to keep going in the direction of the idol. And so he shuts down the whole economy of Israel. What they were worshiping, what they were looking for, what they were seeking from the false idols, he shuts it down. Verse 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from the here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. 
and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it says in verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the what? He drank from the brook. Now, this is a, an amazing story. In many ways, this part of the story at least, we see that God uses both natural and supernatural means to provide for Elijah. It's the best of both worlds. He has this natural brook, this clean, fresh water that was supplying Elijah with the number one most essential element to life, which is water. And he was able to be sustained. But not just that. He just doesn't leave Elijah there to, to salvage uh, edible plants, which I guess he could have. But instead, he miraculously sends something else. God uses a natural brook, but then he uses a, a raven grub hub service to send him something even better. He sends him bread and meat. We call that today a sandwich. And so he's sending Elijah sandwiches from heaven, from the divine sandwich artist, way better than Subway. I always wonder what that sandwich was like, by the way. Man, it had to be pretty good. I love sandwiches. Have you ever, ever, ever noticed when you have a sandwich from a restaurant, you try to make the same one at home, it never turns out the same? There's no way Elijah was, was going to duplicate that sandwich. He could try as much as he wanted after the famine was over. No, that, that was a sandwich from the hand of God. I don't know if the angels put it together or God himself, but either way, it was a sandwich from heaven. I don't know if it was a hoagie, a grinder. I don't know if it was a hero. It could have been a lot of stuff. I don't know. But God provides a sandwich and water for Elijah. And it wasn't Worthington meat in there either, by the way. It must have been the real deal. Kosher, of course. But he sends Elijah what he needed. A brook is natural. The ravens were not. But here is the amazing thing in the story is that God uses ravens. You remember back in Leviticus when God was talking about animals that you weren't supposed to eat or even really even touch? Guess which bird was not in the acceptable column? By name, it was the raven. So, so why would God send these sandwiches in the mouth of the raven down to Elijah, this unclean bird that he wasn't even supposed to touch? What was God doing here? Why would he send this bird in particular? But I think like the second or third smartest bird in the world. So maybe it was partially that, that God had them trained to, to do what he was commanding them to do. But I believe there is something more significant here. He wanted to communicate to Elijah that he can use what is unclean to supply the needs of his people. Oh, hold on. God can use what is unclean to supply the needs of his people. That sounds very unadventist, doesn't it? But it's not. <laughs> what is happening here? We need to be careful not to box in or think that we're so spiritual that we miss God using ravens to address the needs in your life. Because he may be sending help from places that you didn't expect, from people that you would not have expected, people outside your body of faith, places and things outside of what you would have 
thought was maybe even acceptable, God may use to meet your need. I know that's hard. You're saying, well, there's got to be boundaries there. It probably is. But just remember, we must not box God in to think that we can just have this recipe how he's always going to work. God is not bound by your expectations. He has the resources of the entire world, the entire universe, to supply your needs. And once in a while, he'll use a means that you never expected and never thought he would use. I know God's done that in my life several times. Some of the friends that have ministered to me in the most radical ways in my life were not just of the same, they weren't of the same body of faith, but some weren't even believers at all. That God sent into my life at certain points to meet a need, to be a friend. Never underestimate the power of God. I had a friend where I lived before, and I remember, I feel like I bring up this place about twice a month, but he was at the ABC, not the, not the Adventist Book Center. The other ABC. You know where I'm, you know where I'm going already. So, so he was outside the ABC, and, and, and this friend of mine was actually going not to pass out brochures. He was actually going there uh, to, to purchase some, some alcohol. But this man is also a believer, um, and, and he was there, and he, he said as he was going towards that place to purchase what he needed to purchase, he saw a man, and he felt impressed by God to approach him. And he just saw this guy. He was standing over by the one, one door, and he thought, this might just be a guy who's itching for some alcohol. He didn't, he didn't know, but he, something told him. He said, I needed to go talk to him. And so he goes over to this guy, and he looked troubled. He looked concerned. And he, he starts talking to him. He goes, well, what's your name? I mean, they start talking a little bit, getting to know each other. And, and in the conversation, he asks him, well, what are you doing here? And the guy said, you know what? He says, this is amazing. He says, I don't know what this means. He said, but I, was, I had just decided today that I was going to come here, purchase alcohol, drink it, and go home and take my own life. And he said, but God sent you to me today to speak to me, to encourage me, and now I am not going to do that. So if God can use a gentleman going to a liquor store to even buy liquor to talk to an individual who's going to take their own life to save that person, why should we believe that God cannot use a raven to feed Elijah? Be careful not to box God in to this perfectly shaped bubble that we've placed him in. He is always working, and he works through the righteous and those who are still not clear on even who he is. We must always recognize that. In order to have a brook provide for us or the ravens feed us, we must recognize first that God is the source of everything. Our job, our bank, our employer, that's not our source. Nothing is the source. God is the only source for everything. We have to recognize that first and foremost, above and beyond anything. Everything else is just a resource. God is the source. Everything that you have that you think maybe provides you and me 
with our sustenance, our job, our work ethic, our boss. Those are just resources, a mechanism that God uses. But we must free him up to use any mechanism that he chooses to, even if it is not normally something we'd expect him to use. But we can claim the promise of God in Philippians 4.19. It says, And my God shall supply what? All of your needs. The grace of God supplies all of our needs according to his riches. And where are those riches found? In glory by Jesus Christ. He provides all of our needs. He may not give you everything you want, but he promises he'll give you everything that you need. And if we're trusting him, we'll, we'll realize and trust him even in the things that we don't understand. We can claim this promise, and I believe that every time he is faithful to his promise, that he'll supply our needs. Elijah's at Cherith. He's drinking Tasso water from the spring. He's eating from the hand of the divine sandwich artist. And then in verse 7, boom, something happens. Verse 7 Things are going well. Sandwiches and water. And then it happened after a while that the what? The brook dried up. The brook dried up. Everything was comfortable. His knees were being met and suddenly, boom, no more water. Why? Simple explanation. Because there had been no rain in the land. Duh. No rain, no water. The brook's well, couldn't God have kept that going? Yeah, but he didn't. Why? He's sending miraculous sandwiches from heaven, but he wouldn't stop the brook from drying up. What gives? Why would God not perform another miracle for Elijah? Because water was more important than food. He can only live a, a couple days without this resource, but maybe even 30 or 40 without the other. It teaches us a lesson. Giving in faith is rooted in the recognition not just that God is our provider through his grace, but secondly, in recognition of God's providence, his provision, but secondly, as we will see here, of his providence. Now the judgments that everyone else is experiencing are now affecting Elijah. The drought that came on by the word of the Lord suddenly are now affecting Elijah. No more water. The stopping up of the heavens of rain are now causing this brook to dry up. The economy, the circumstances, the downturn are now affecting him. Friends, things dry up. If you've lived in this world long enough, you realize that things dry up. And some of you and I have come today standing beside our dried up brook and asking God, what gives? What is happening here? I thought you were going to provide for my needs. Things were going well, but suddenly this brook dries up. There's nothing here to sustain me. What are you going to do, God? Many of us stand and sit here today asking God the question, why? And then how? What are you going to do, God, about this dried up brook? Things dry up. Don't let anyone ever tell you that things never dry up in this, in, this, in this life. Serve the Lord and things will never get dry. Serve the Lord and you won't lose your job, get sick. Things don't break down and cause you to dip into your savings, into funds that you were hoping to use for something else or needed for something else. Don't let anyone ever tell you 
that if you're at the center of God's will, that things won't dry up, because they will. The brook was in the land, and the land was in the atmosphere of the judgment. And so, uh, and so Elijah was affected. Just this, today, I was, I was reading, actually last, last after, yesterday afternoon, about prices and shortages that we're facing here. I know we haven't felt it maybe so much here yet, but we're probably going too soon. But there is supply chain issues in the shipping industry, and there's shortages of many products that we love and hold dear to us and, and need here in America, or at least maybe they're first world problems in, in some of these circumstances, but we feel like we need them. And so because of, of, of congestion in the shipping lanes out in, in California, which is now trickling over here, power outages in China, shortages in truck drivers, restrictions and illnesses through COVID-19 infections all have caused a shortage of the supply chain and caused bottlenecks throughout our country and throughout the world. And we see supplies are way down and prices are going up. Don't ever think because you are in the center of God's will that things don't dry up. Because I just learned in this article that Ben and Jerry's ice cream is now going to have to reduce their flavors. Like Chunky Monkey, Jerry, Jerry, Cherry Garcia. Can you imagine life without those? <laughs> Things dry up. Sour Patch Kids, Chandler. They said those are, might be in short supply. You might want to stock up. The saying. Guys, I hate to say this, they even mentioned toilet paper. It's being shipped at only 60%. You might want to go grab a couple extra packages. Things dry up. You may have faith in Jesus, and I pray that we all do. We all are recipients of the grace of God. We all, maybe, I pray we've submitted ourselves daily to the will of God, that we are in the center of what he has for us. And yet you and I are still affected by the things that are happening in the world around us. Brooks dry up. Supply chains get congested. You can't get items you need at the grocery store. Sometimes you might even get COVID, like a lot of us have. And some of our families have been devastated by COVID. Not because you're not in the center of God's will, but because we're in the center of a cosmic conflict. And we're in the center of a place and a planet that has delved deep into this conflict between good and evil. God never promised we would be free from the, the hardships that face this planet because of sin. But sometimes there's collateral damage, and even those children of God are touched by it. So never believe that things are never going to dry up for you. Even things seem to be going well. The brook can still dry up, and it probably will dry up one time or another. But here's the good news, that even if the, if the, if the brook dries up, God is still good. He is good in the feast, he is good in the famine. He is good when the well is full. He is good when the well is empty. That is the difference. Because when the brook dries up, as a believer, as we trust the Lord, we know that he is good. And we trust him because of his goodness. And even if things don't start going well when we expect, or even if they never do in a certain aspect, he is still good. 
And his grace is still there. And it's still there to transform us and to save us and to give us eternal life. Brooks dry up. That's why Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He can take away everything. Everything can dry up, even our very life and our breath. But he is still good. And it's because of his goodness that we're going to trust him. Amen? Verse 8. Here's something else we have to remember as well. In the context of what's happening here in the story. And the Lord The word of the Lord came to him. Still in the midst of God's will, the brook dries up. God's still speaking to him. He hasn't forsaken him. He says, arise and go to Zarephath. You're here in Cherith, but now he says, arise and go, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to what? To provide for you. So we, we, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that God says, I have a provision elsewhere. I'm going to send you to. I'm still going to provide for your needs. The bad news is it's in the bail belt. Kind of like the Bible belt. It was in the bail belt. It was in the heart of bail worship over in Sidonia. It was the heart of this pagan worship. No Israelite would have ever ventured over there for any reason whatsoever. And he's telling Elijah to go over there because he has somebody over there to provide for his needs. Once again, God will often test our faith by sending you places and I places we otherwise would not prefer to go because it doesn't make sense. How is a widow down to her last meal going to help Elijah? She can't even help herself. How is she going to help Elijah? But nonetheless, God said, I commanded the widow to be your new provider. And so go. And Elijah's ear was in tune close enough to God that he doesn't question it. He doesn't hesitate. He just goes. The brook's dry, but God says, I have another brook for you. I have another place, another provision. And so go. Go, I will provide for your needs. Giving in God's grace And you might be saying, this isn't much about giving. We're getting there. (laughs) Giving in God's grace recognizes, it recognizes that God is is sovereign. It recognizes that God is our provider. But it also recognizes that God is in a position of power and authority. It recognizes God's provision, his providence, and his power. Verse 9. He says, Arise and go to Zarephath. The widow's going to take care of you. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her. He wanted to make sure it was who he thought it was. And so he asked the second question, hey, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So he sees she's getting him water. Step one, that was good. Now he wants a sandwich, but he'll settle for something less. And so he asked for a morsel of bread, a small piece of bread. And so she said, as the Lord your God lives. Pause. How did she know? 
who Elijah's God was. Why would she even assume that he was a prophet? He didn't say anything else but ask for water and for bread. Because God was already preparing the way. As a matter of fact, in the spirit of prophecy, we're told, this woman, while she was living in the land of spiritual darkness, was living up to the little bit of light she had and was a follower of God. She was not an Israelite, but she probably didn't have all the truth but she was living up to the light she had about the God of heaven. Even to the point where she acknowledges him and that he wasn't truly the God of her land, but the God of this man, Elijah's land and his people. God was preparing the way. And so it says, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar, And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Dismal. What a sad situation. This woman was gathering a few sticks, maybe some kindling, so that she was going to cook this small amount of dough with some oil, eat their last meal, and wait to die. She was a widow, a single mom, had no resources in that culture, no one to turn to for help, and now living in a land that was also suffering the famine, she has nothing and no one, and now she is there destitute, just waiting to die. And Elijah, in verse 13, said to her, do not fear. She was afraid. She was afraid of what was going to happen. She did not want to go through what she was looking ahead to. He says, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. This seems really rude, by the way. I mean, the lady has a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. It's going to be their last morsel of food that she and her son are going to share. And here's this dude comes out from nowhere and says, hey, give me some first. Come on. That sounds pretty selfish and very inconsiderate, Elijah. But listen. Give it to me first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. He supplies a promise, but it is a conditional promise on the faith that God was instilling through him in the heart of this widow from Sidonia. Apart from the people of Israel. You see, God does this so often. He declares a promise, and then there's a problem that challenges the promise. You see, he says, I will supply you with oil and flour until there is rain again. But the problem was, there's nowhere to get it. She had a little bit left. And if she used that up, She would die even faster if she gave him what he asked for. With every promise, there is always a challenge. Why does God do that? Why can't we just get a promise and not have anything to build our faith? Because God knows that the joy and the growth and the grace 
is in the faith. It is in the problem. (laughs) It is only through the struggle that we will truly ever recognize the goodness of God to its full extent. And so he always presents a small, medium, or large problem for us to respond to in line with the promise. He's challenging this woman's faith. And God is is building a faith equation here. Verse 13, he says something. He says, first make me a cake, then make yourself and your son some. A small cake, he says. He's building a faith-building equation about giving. (laughs) Right here. Remember Malachi? You were hoping I wasn't going to go there, weren't you? Malachi, yeah, chapter 3. Talks about bringing all the tithes into the storehouse. Talking about robbing God with our tithes and offerings. But he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And know this, says the Lord God of hosts, that I want to open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive. What's the equation we see here in the story? The equation God paints for us about giving in, by his grace through faith. We already learned that we give because of his provision. We recognize he is our provider. His grace gives us all that we need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So that is the motivation behind any giving that we do, any true good motivation that is sustainable, that will be healthy in giving. But then the second aspect of faith is important. We give by grace the motivation through faith which is the power and the strength and the means to give, to empower us to give. Remember the Bible says it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. The will comes from his grace. The desire comes from his grace. He implants that in us because of his goodness. It draws us to him. It inspires us to give to others and to give back to him. But then it is faith that gives us the strength to do his good pleasure. The will is by grace. The doing is by faith. Faith is the strength because trusting in the word of God, trusting in his promises, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the brook is dried up, faith oversees everything. Faith overcomes any obstacle and trusts in the promises of God. And it's God who's working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Just real quick, God's portion is always the first portion because he is the owner of all. He is sovereign. And God even says his portion is a smaller portion. But it's always a sacrificial portion which challenges our faith because it goes against the economics of this world. Less with God is always more. But here in this world, less is always less. Usually, unless you're a minimalist, then you love having less. But typically, in the financial realm, less is less. But with God, less is more when we trust him by faith. With God, we are always in the majority. With God, we have all the resources of heaven. No matter what's in your bank account, how little and how much, it doesn't matter. Because God has a bank account which is infinite. And the bank account is filled with his grace and his provision for you. He knows exactly what you need. 
He may not give you the million dollars that you want, but he'll give you the grace that you need. Amen? He'll give you the grace that you need, and he'll fulfill every need that you have according to his riches. God's portion is always a sacrificial portion. That's always the problem. Do we trust him enough to believe him? Okay, that's, that's the tithe thing. <laughs> you can't escape it. It's right there in the story. But look at verse 15. So she went away, and here is the key. She went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household, what? Ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. God provides for her needs. He presents a promise. He present, then he allows a problem because there is no way to get what he was promising apart from him. But then God provides his provision according to his promise in response to his grace and her faith. Hallelujah. In response to the faith that was planted in her by him. One thing I want us to recognize is that who was the provision for originally in the story? I forgot. Did you forget? God says to Elijah, he says, I have prepared a widow to provide for your needs. The whole story is about really Elijah and God providing for him. But in the midst of this story, we have a story within a story of God providing for this widow in the midst of providing for Elijah. It may have just blown your mind. I don't know. But it's profound. Because within this context, we find the secret. The secret for us today on how God accomplishes God's his provision for Elijah. How does he do it? He fulfills his promise to provide for Elijah's needs, shouldn't be surprising, by loving acts of grace through faith. The secret to our provision being met, being provided, is not simply to sit there and wait, as many times we want to, for the, the showers of blessings to fall, but instead, there is an active part that God asks of us to experience his miracle and his provision. The secret to our provision and the miracle God wants to provide is to become the provider for someone who needs what you need. <laughs> they were in the same boat. Neither of them had any food or barely anything to drink. And so instead of saying, Elijah, I'm going to give you what you need first, then you can go help this lady. He goes, no, you got nothing, and I'm going to go tell you, I'm having you go help a lady who has nothing. So you're going to help nothing with nothing. <laughs> but notice what God does. He asks Elijah, who had nothing with him, to go to this lady who would provide for his needs. But how does he provide for his needs? By Elijah 
through God's strength, providing for her needs. Did you catch that? God provides for Elijah's needs by God using Elijah to provide for her needs. This reciprocal circle of grace and provision. Maybe God is pricking your hand today to reach out to someone who is sad while you yourself may need encouragement today. Maybe you've come today suffering with an illness and yet God is calling you to minister to somebody else who's suffering with something maybe not even as bad as what you have, as long as it's not contagious. Or maybe he's calling you to provide comfort when you are in the place of loss and mourning. Maybe he's calling you to defend the cause of the helpless when you yourself are in need of defending. Or maybe he is calling you to provide sustenance for someone else like Elijah when you are desperate need of just the basic needs of life today yourself. This is at the very heart of giving by grace through faith. Grace motivates by the loving heart of God and faith moves us to the sovereign hand of God even when it doesn't make sense. To go and help somebody else when you yourself need help does not make sense according to our world's economy. But in God's economy, it is the only way to experience his true provision and the miracle he wants to offer you in your life. It is God who works on us, but the willing to do is good pleasure. God's grace fuels his supernatural circle of provision, which is accomplished through faith. That's why Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. This is not the prosperity gospel. It's not some reciprocal way of giving so that we'll get back. That's not the right motivation. It's not prosperity. It's not reciprocal. That motivation for doing good is never the right one. But it is a natural result of the overwhelming waves of mercy that flow from the throne of God's grace to every corner of the universe. And it is the same grace that flows through the life of every child of the Most High, lived out by faith in Him. It is the true picture of God's supernatural circle of provision found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where God reveals, where God reveals that He loves a cheerful giver, that God blesses His people to bless others. His grace to us is meant to be gracious to other people. That's why he gives, so that we can give and extend his grace to those around us, as we said. But it always is an act of faith. Luke chapter 4, verse 24. I love this story because we see a crossover. Jesus says to in his own hometown as he was trying to, to share the good news, and they rejected. They said, who are you? Why are you here? He says, I say to you, no prophet is except in his own town. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus brings this widow into the New Testament and he says it for a reason. He says it because it is his grace 
that knows no boundaries. While his own people were living in idolatry, closed in their hearts to his grace, there was a widow in Zarephath whose heart was open to receive his blessing. May we never be in the danger as God's people of being so caught up in who we think we are and what we think we know and just going through the motions of life that we miss the grace of God and the provision He wants to provide, the provision of His grace and the grace through faith that He wants you to extend to those around you. It is sacrificial. It costs us something. But God will empower us to do His good pleasure. And so the question for each of us is, what is God calling us to do to be an extension of His grace through faith to the world around us? Where is He calling you to go? Where is your Zarephath? Maybe your book has dried up. Maybe you're, you're facing a dried up book right now, and that's all you're focused on. But God is not saying, look at the brook. He's saying, look at where I have for you to go. I have provisions somewhere else. But in the midst of that provision, I have you to minister to somebody else, to provide grace and my light to them so that you can receive more of my grace. Where is God calling us to be his lights, to be his hands and feet, to be an extension of his throne of grace in this world of darkness? Let's bow our heads. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, today we come before you recognizing, first of all, that we are sinful that we are broken, that we are helpless. We're poor, blind, and naked. Apart from you, we are nothing. But in you, Father, we are redeemed. In you, in Jesus, we are forgiven. In you, we are covered by your grace. We are loved. We matter because you've revealed that in so many ways, especially through the cross of Calvary. It's not just us who matter, but everyone on this planet matters to you. And you've called us to be conduits of the same grace that we have received to those around us. But Lord, we recognize it also requires faith, the faith that you've instilled in us, the faith that you want to grow in us. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help our unbelief, help us not to focus on the dried-up brook, but to look beyond that in, through the eyes of faith, to the provisions you have for us and through us to those around us, to extend your grace. Show us what that means, each one of us individually. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives and in everything that you've called us to do and be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all sing together as we sing, Take My Life. And let this be the natural response to what we've heard here today. Today, let us stand.
Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, please hear this song and may it be our prayer that you would take everything that we are, everything that we have, that will be only yours and transform us into the people you've called us to be by your grace. Lord, may that start in our homes, may it start in this church, in this community, and beyond, Father. Lord, bless us as we leave this place. We leave with a renewed sense of your grace, of your goodness, and of your purpose for us as your people. May that never be, be blinded out or, or shaded out because of any idols that, that we've chosen to set up. But may we always recognize that you are our provider, that your providence is always trustworthy, and that your power is always there. And that power is, is ultimately shown in its most amazing way through your grace. So we thank you, Lord, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As a reminder, if you would like special prayer today, we'll have a couple elders here at the front to pray with you. If you have any special needs that you'd like to share and and pray about, please come to the front, and we'll have some elders once again to pray with you today. God bless you. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you next, next Sabbath.